Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 3rd, 2014. This is episode 1476 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about money. Money, 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 money. I'm not going to talk about getting out of debt today really much. I'm sure some words about it will come in or the euro crisis or interest rates or anything like that from a standpoint of like modern issues or current events or money management. I'm going to actually talk about what money is, how it controls the society and what you can and what you cannot do to free yourself from it. But the understanding of it is key. This is going to be a show that for some of you are going to be like, man, this guy's going to a really high level. I don't know if I can go there. You can. You absolutely can. I want to tell you something really, really important today as we start out. Money is so simple that it repels the mind. Your mind says it can't be that simple. So it makes itself appear complicated. The next thing is, I am going to tell you the primary way by which human beings have been enslaved since the dawn of civilization today. So it might take a little bit of effort, a little bit of work to get some of the things I'm saying. Some of them may feel a little, you know, ethereal. Uh, some of them may feel a little bit almost, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, metaphysical. You might think like I'm going off into metaphysics or something. I'm not. I'm not. There's just certain words that have started to become, you know, associated with things like that, like energy and intention, right? So if I use words like energy and intention, you might start thinking, oh, he's talking about attracting money by willing it. So no, 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 no. Give this one a serious listen today. If you truly want to understand how the people in power maintain control and why there's things you can do to extract yourself from that control, Why many of the things that control people are only illusions, yet you can't separate yourself from the control mechanism fully just because it's an illusion. Because the illusion creates mass delusion, and the mass delusion creates a certain reality. And some of that reality affects you because it's all around you. Sound hard to understand? Listen today, and it'll all make sense. And you will probably start looking at the world in a completely new way. You will start seeing things like control and current forms of slavery in a totally new way, and you will find both some depression in some of the acceptance of reality, but a lot of freedom and liberty in what can be done about it and what can be done through understanding it. I know it sounds tough, but it's worth it. Before we do that, let us take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Save Castle Royal. Save Castle does... All kinds of really great things to help your prepping needs. If you can think of it, they've got it from guns to gardens and everything else in between. They also build some really awesome hardened shelters. You can learn more at safecastle.com. They also have a great discount membership program. They sell it for uh, $50, actually $49 one time for a lifetime uh, a membership in their discount membership club. But if you're a member of my support brigade, you get it for free. And in essence, their, their membership 
uh, that they give you free pace for your first year of MSB minus a buck. So it makes your first year of MSB a buck just from that one benefit. They're a great long-term supporter. I'm glad to have them on board. I've done business business with them many times personally. Check them out, and you'll see why again, safecastle.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the linchpin, and your gun, uh, gun operator triangle of efficiency is Fortress Defense Consultants. It's the training. It's the operator. It's you. You got to have a gun, you got to have ammo, but you, the operator, and the training that you have is what makes you efficient. So get professional training. A lot of times people say, what's the next gun I should get? And if you haven't had a firearms training class within a year or two, maybe you should take another class instead of buying another gun. Beware of the man that carries one gun. He probably knows how to use it. That's all about the operator's efficiency. Every person that has gone to Frank Sharp's training and has gotten in touch with me to tell me about it, has been blown away by how great the training is. The bigger thing is you will not just train with Fortress Defense. They will train you so that you can go home and continue to train and develop your own skills. They will train you to train yourself. Check them out, FortressDefense.com. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two for you today to pick from. One is Dracula is dead for now, and the plague kills the calendar fix. These are things that happen in the year 1476, because it's episode 1476. Our quick look at history to get a view of the present. The Plague Kills the Calendar Fix is the one I'm going to bill a read. Jonathan Mueller is a German astronomer and a son of a miller, which is probably why his last name is Mueller. However, he is best known as Regiomontinus, which means the King's Mountain. It is a place of his birth. It is like being born in Laredo and thereafter being known as the man from Laredo. He has learned Greek so he can study ancient astronomy books in the original. He has also studied what is now known as Halley's Comet. It is the first time such objects are studied in a formal manner instead of being seen as an omen. He has become so famous that he has been summoned by the Pope to help fix the Julian calendar. Unfortunately, the Black Death will take him this year in Rome. A fix for the calendar is denied. My take by Alex Shrug. Last names are becoming the norm during this time. They are shortening up their names, so Richard of York is shortened to Richard York. Last names can be tied to an occupation like Baker, Miller, Smith, meaning blacksmith, or Smith's son, meaning blacksmith's son. The name Wasserman probably refers to ancestors who carried water to the town or lived near water. Uh, there is also a patonomic, meaning naming, uh, being named after your father, which, uh, if you watch the credits for a movie, The Secret of Walter Mitty, 2013, which was filmed in Iceland, you will notice an inordinate number of people with nearly the same last name. It's a patonomic formula. Olofsson means son of Olaf. Hatterdor means daughter of Harold. Uh, my own name would be Alex Alexson since my father's name was Alex. So that's interesting. Um, I have a different take on this instead of the naming uh, convention. So you have this dude, right? John, John, jo Johan. I said John, uh, jo Jonathan, I think. It's Johan Mueller. So Johan Mueller is this astronomer, right? He's this famous dude and he's got it worked out, man. He's figured out the mathematics. Basically what he's figured out is that little pain in the ass one quarter day thing. And he probably had a solution somewhere along the concept of the leap year that we use today to keep the calendar working. See, without that one quarter day factored in and the leap year that, that, that corrects the calendar, that one quarter day starts to bite you in the ass over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And the whole calendar starts to drift. So he's got this worked out. He's on his way because the Pope is like, 
This is the dude that can fix our problem. We know the calendar's not working right. And things are starting to not line up the way they're supposed to anymore. And we need to figure out how to fix this. So he summons Johan. Johan, dude, come to Rome. And Johan's on the way and he gets the plague, which I'll talk about in just a second, but then he dies. So there's now a lag before we actually get this fixed. One man. This is how one man can actually make a difference. Sometimes it's something that seems not that big a deal from a distance, but when you really examine it, it would have monumentous consequences, like changing the entire calendar the world operates under. So my other thing I want to point out is, you know, we went through the dark ages, the middle ages, the, 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 the waves of the Black Death, the waves of the plague, half the population being wiped out. We talked about that through the summer this year in the 1300s, and we got past it. We're now 100 plus years, 150 years past when the, the big waves of the plague, and it still comes back from time to time, and it still kills people. And death is far more um, a part of the lives of people in the 1400s than it is in the lives of people today. So a lot of the things that you study and learn about from that time frame, you go, how do people act like this? You act differently when people around you die all the time. Not just of old age and not just of cancer, but of any random set of things that can take lives of people from young children to people in the prime of their life, to old people, to young people, to women at childbirth, you name it, there's a culture of death throughout this time period because death is part of the culture, not because people wanted death as part of the culture. It just is. There's a certain reality of what is. Uh, next up, real quick, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you can help support my show at about 20 cents an episode. You'll get a lot of great stuff when you join. Uh, members-only content. I am uploading an, uh, a video right now uh, that is for MSB members only. That'll be out later this week. You'll be able to see that probably today. We'll see. Depends on how the uh, the Internet connection works while I'm doing all this other stuff like recording the show, etc. Anyway, uh, so that's one great benefit of being an MSB member. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on Members, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and First Responders. All of you guys qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Send it to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. With that, uh, I want to get into the main topic today, but I want to say something um, for people that sometimes see me comment in the blog and think, boy, Jack's a dick. Um, I had a guy yesterday that it probably meant well, called himself Chef Jeff, that was nitpicking on some of the terminology I used, where there were times I said braise, and what I really meant was sear. Um, and, you know, I figured, looking at the comments Jeff made, I can see that he probably just was trying to help. And there's a lot of people that try to help. And then there's a lot of people that just wait. And when you, when you speak for an hour, hour and a half a day on all these different subjects, occasionally you're going to say a word you don't mean. In a video that I uploaded today that I'm talking about for the MSB, at one point I said chickens when I meant my ducks. Now, I clearly know the difference between a chicken and a duck, right? Just as an example. And on a video that I'm editing, I actually had the opportunity to put a little text in there. If you're an MSB member, when you see this video, you see, I actually meant to say ducks, okay? You, 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 you substitute words at times when you, when you talk this much. And if you're going to put out a show like this without a guest host or something like that, occasionally you're just going to do it and just run through it and not realize it, or you realize that you just got to keep going, right? And then somebody comes in and goes, when well, you said this and you meant that. 
And sometimes it's like Jeff, where they mean well. And sometimes it's just, I have snipers, guys. I have people that they live to do this shit. And they do it day after day after day after day. So it's not the bale of straw that makes the camel collapse. It's the last straw. If you keep putting straw on the camel's back, sooner or later, the camel goes, poof. And you go, I don't understand. All I do is put one straw on there. Well, it's all the straw that went on there before. So I don't usually say things like, you're stupid or you're a jerk or insult the person. I just may some say what I said to Jeff yesterday. Yawn. I don't care. Right? And then like four other people get all butt hurt over it. I post a picture of where you can get your butt hurt or ointment over it. Right? Because, oh my God, you, listen. To, t- to tell somebody you don't care about their nitpicking, you know, is uh, is not to hurt their feelings. I don't know. And one person said, I don't know why you were offended and you didn't mean to hurt your feelings. My feelings weren't hurt. I wasn't offended. I just don't care. And usually when I don't care, I don't say anything. But if you just happen to be at the right place at the right time to pile that on, even if you didn't mean to, I might tell you I don't care. And hopefully, if I do that to you, you'll go, well, he's having a bad day. I was the, I was the last straw or whatever. Trust me, if you actually upset me, if you actually piss me off, if I feel you're being insulting or hurtful or whatever, if I feel you're being abusive, if I feel you're just being a dick to be a dick, I'm not going to respond to you. I'm going to remove your comment and ban your ass. Right? That's how I handle people that are actually being that way. But if you give me some nitpicking details, right, I just might tell you that I don't care that day. And hopefully we can all get over that. And hopefully you understand, I'm not being an ass. Just there's times where like, okay, you know what, man, I'm tired of this. I really am. And it's not, again, it's not me being an ass. It's me just telling you, I, I, I just can't care today. I'm sorry. And please understand always, when you look at text comments, texts, text is the lowest form of communication. And if, if you told me that, and I said, you know, I don't care. You might be like, oh, okay, he's, you know. Right. But when you just read it, it sounds far more abrupt and you don't hear the tone in speech. So why do I do it? Again, some days you're that straw that makes the camel fall down. Just are. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. And uh, hopefully Chef Jeff can forgive me for telling him I didn't care because I actually do care. I really do. Just didn't care about that at that moment. Anyway, <laughs> with that, let's start talking about money today, because that's what the real show's about today. Money, 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 money! You know, remember the old song, money, 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 right? Okay, that song? Yeah. Right? So, when we look at money, we think we understand money. And the average person that thinks they understand money, I think the average economist, I think the average person with a degree in economics... I think even in many ways, people with masters or PH degrees in economics or related fields, if you ask them what money is, they do not know what money is. They have no idea what money is. And the main reason they don't know what money is is because the first thing we learn about money is the definition of money, which is just false. The textbook definition of money is something generally accepted as a medium of exchange, a measure of value, or a means of payment. Officially coined or stamped metal currency, paper money, wealth reckoned in terms of money, an amount of money, a sum of money, a form or denomination of coin or paper money. Okay? This is, this is how we define money. And you say, well, of course that's what money is. And see, that's, the problem is, when I say what is money, 
And you give that definition, which I understand why people would. I used to. It's what you're taught in school. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's what you find. It must be true. But the, 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 that is actually the answer to the question of how is money represented? Or how is money presented? Okay? Or how is money quantified in our modern world? And it's through this medium of exchange. But it doesn't actually answer the question, what is money? Because if it did, then money would be nothing. And, and this is what I mean. I can take two pieces of paper and put them in front of you. Okay, They are the exact same composition of paper. They are coated with the exact same type of ink, pretty much the same amount of ink. They have the same little plastic things inside them for counterfeit protection. But one says 20 and one says 100. And yes, I am talking about Jack and Ben, right? Andrew Jackson and Benjamin Franklin, U.S. currency. A $20 bill and a $100 bill. And if I put those in front of you right now and say you can take either one, even if you like Andrew Jackson better than Benjamin Franklin as a person, I actually like Benjamin Franklin a bit better, but I'm a big, pretty big fan of Jackson. He's the last president I think we had that was actually a, a good president, just to give you my opinion of the state that we're in right now. But, you know, I prefer Ben. But if I preferred Jack, right, if I preferred Andrew Jackson, hey, my name's Jack, his name's Jackson, right, I still would take the 100. Why? Because it's worth more, with air quotes, worth more. But why? Why? Well, because the government says so, but that's not really why. Because the numbers make it, yeah, but that's not really why. In the end, aren't those two pieces of paper, in a sense, equally worthless? And don't get into the whole, you know, gold standard, let all of that, put all of the things you think you know about money today, to, to really get the most out of this, all the places you want to jump ahead and, and be the, the, the gifted student and go, he's going to say this next, just take all that crap, put it on the shelf today. Trust me. Because I'm going, unless you've heard me speak deep into this before, I'm going to take you to places mentally that you haven't been. And it will change your view, but you have to be willing to go with me to those places. So again, without the gold standard issue, without any of that stuff, how are those two equally worthless? Well, the reason they're equally worthless is what can you really do with a piece of paper that size? That's already been marked up. You can't write on it. You can't really do much with it, right? It doesn't really functionally do anything. It might be worth a penny or two. You might be able to figure out how to fold it into something cool, and that might provide a little bit of amusement. Somebody might actually be able to make art out of it or something like that. But but in the end, it's you know it's just a small piece of paper. But one is worth something, and one is worth five of the first one. Right? Ben's worth five jacks. It almost sounds like a card game, right? And, and you, you start to, if you really look at that, and then you still force the question, not how is money represented, not what do we do to create money today, not how is money presented, how is money utilized, how is money printed, but what is money and you go up against that reality that these are two primarily worthless pieces of paper that still have value because they are money. No, they're not just currency. They're currency, but they are also money. And I can prove it to you because if I give you the choice, you will take the Benjamin every time. 
And if you take that Benjamin, you can go buy food, you can go buy energy, you can go buy your health care, you can buy all kinds of stuff with him, and you can buy stuff with Andy, right? But you just need five Andys to equal one Ben. Got it? So what is the money? And I know I'm, I'm pushing you here, but I'm actually hoping some of you will get there. But the reality is money is an agreement. Money is a psychological contract. And that psychological contract is wrapped around and entwined with energy to the point where you could actually say money is energy. Money is energy. That's, that's what it is. And it is a representation of energy. And it is an energetic exchange between people with a psychological contract who have mentally agreed that a certain symbol will represent that energy. That's, that's what it is. And once we understand that money is energy, we start to realize something. If money really is energy, then it must obey the laws of energy. And one of the most solidly understood laws of energy And we can get into the quantum area and get really, really high-level physical where we might contest this a little bit. But in essence, energy can neither be what? Created nor destroyed. It can only be changed in form. And that is money. Have you ever thought about money that way? You can't create money. You can't destroy money. You can only change its form. Because it is not, so you take a $100 bill and you burn it. And it's gone. You say, Jack, I've created it. And I say, no, you haven't. And, and you say, oh, I get it. You've, I've changed his form. Now there's ash. No, that's a, that's a change of matter. We can, we can literally <laughs> convert matter into energy or energy into matter. Those are high-level physical things that we haven't completely figured out, but those can happen. But that's not what I'm talking about. The $100 bill was never the money. The $100 bill was a representation of energy. It was a representation of value. And that value still exists without the money. It's only the psychological contract between you and I and all other Americans and a large part of the world that said, hey, that Ben guy on that piece of paper, that way, it represents this much work. And you might find different ways to quantify that energy as human labor. If you work for $20 an hour, That Benjamin is worth five labor units of hours from you, okay? If you pay somebody $20 an hour, then that Benjamin is worth to you their results from that labor, what they do for you when you pay them, okay? If you buy a certain amount of lumber with that $100 bill, then you're saying that to you that amount of energy stored in the production of timber is worth $100. And a market gets involved that equalizes the, the, the different opinions of people based on the basic economic laws of supply and demand. right? But it doesn't actually work unless you start to see the money as energy. All these concepts like supply and demand, inflation, deflation, all these economic words that you hear tossed around, as long as you see the money as the currency unit, or you believe the lie of the people that, that worship gold as though it's actually some kind of a god to be worshipped, right? It, as long as you believe that, none of it really makes sense. You get caught up in the debate between gold and paper and you realize it doesn't matter. 
It, it doesn't matter. Because in the end, an economy only has so much value. And we could change the numbers on the paper. T tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, they could say all ones are tens, okay? All tens are hundreds. All hundreds are thousands. All thousands are ten thousands. And we go, oh my God. But if all your money instantly changed that way, do you know what actually changed? Nothing. Nothing at all. The psychological ramifications might take a while to flesh out. But if, if we just added a zero to every denomination out there, right? We just did it. All debts, all obligations, all payments, all currencies, if we just added a zero. And you did just as much work now to get a hundred as you used to do to get a ten. But the hundred bought exactly the same thing. What really changes? Well, I go to the store, and now buying this bag of, uh, of groceries is $100 versus $10. So? So what? It's not inflation if it's just changing the symbol. It's only truly inflation if the amount of energy necessary to produce the symbol goes up while the purchasing power of the symbol remains constant or goes down. Okay? That might seem hard to understand, but let's do, let's let's look at it again. Let's say we added a zero to every every currency. A tenfold inflation is what it looks like. I have to now use a hundred dollar bill to do what a ten dollar bill used to do. Okay, but I do the exact. I was making ten dollars an hour, and now I make a hundred dollars an hour. Did I get a raise? No. Is there any inflation? No. I had ten thousand dollars in the bank. Okay. Now I have $100,000 in the bank. Did I win or did I lose? Neither. If, ever, if all we did was change all the symbols, nothing changes. Why? Because the bill isn't the value. The gold coin isn't the value. They are an agreement about the exchange of energy. And then you can start to understand why money controls the world. Because there are really six things that are the biggest industries out there. And those six things are all now controlled through the law of energy while you believe that they're actually monetary. The first one would be durable materials. Every large piece of durable material represents an industry around the concepts of construction and manufacturing. Right. This is the, the, the one of the, the six largest industries in the world, construction and manufacturing. And so if I'm going to build something out of wood, again, the tree represents a huge store of natural energy, solar energy, and the conversion of different uh, particles, molecules, the carbogen, carbon and nitrogen cycles, fungal cycles, bacterial cycles that were necessary to grow that tree. And that's one component of the energy there. And then we have to cut the tree down. We have to mill the tree. That's another component of energy. And then we have to transport the tree, which is a different industry. And that's also one of the six. But that energy now is part of the cost of that piece of material. Okay. If it's a iron, it's a steel beam. It started out as iron. That iron required a certain amount of energy in the very formation of the planet. A tremendous amount of energy for that iron to form as an element. 
And then that iron had to be mined, more energy, okay, and extracted and converted into steel and then formed into a beam. And all of those things are energetic. And it's the energy, it's the labor, it's the investment in all of that, both natural and, and man-added, value-added investment that makes that beam cost a certain amount of money, But the money is really the value in the beam. What does it do? Do we put it up and call it art and look at it and go, ah, oh, and has a certain value because we have a, a preconceived idea of the art? Or does it hold up a building that couldn't exist without it? Then how much value does the building have and how much value of the building is represented in the beams? It's all about the energy. Then there's fuel energy. One of the, again, another one of the largest industries in the world is fuels. Oil and gas is what everybody thinks. But it's oil, it's gas, it's solar, it's wind, it's nuclear. It's anything and everything, and it's every piece of it. It's not just pulling the oil out of the ground. It's, it's, it's converting it into things like gasoline and diesel and kerosene. And there's a tremendous energy reserve in those fuels. And then there's an energy component to transforming them into more usable forms so that they'll do what we want. But the value in them is all about energy. Okay, The next is the healthcare, the pharmaceutical industry. But it's all of health. All of health is based on energy. right? And again, I'm not metaphysical, well-being, chakra alignment stuff. I'm talking about flat-out energy. And I don't care if it's uh, Pfizer making a new drug that requires a tremendous energetic investment For all of the mind power that goes into figuring out how this drug works and what it does, running trials, running tests, making sure it's safe, refining it and manufacturing it so that they can be one of the wealthiest organizations in the world with that representation of energy in that one little pill. Or if it's you treating your own ailments with an herb, that herb has a certain amount of energy that it has to consume in order to grow and to transform itself into a form. And then you have to take that that herb, that raw herb, and then you do something with it, whether it's an infusion or a decoction or anything. And you, you no matter what you do, there's an energy cons component to it. And then you ingest it, and then it does whatever it does. But health is not just drugs and herbs. Health is your water. If you don't have clean water, you're dead. Health is the air you breathe. Health is all the things around you that allow you to live a healthy life. And all of them are based on energy. Then there's food. When we eat food, we're literally consuming energy. We actually measure food in calories, and calories are nothing but a unit of energy. And But, but not every calorie is created equal. We have different values, both nutritive values and subjective values. So we knew, know full well that uh, meat is more nutrient-dense than corn. So meat has a higher value because per calorie there's more nutrient. But when we look at two pieces of meat that are almost identical from a nutrient standpoint, but one is a beef shin that I'm going to be cooking today for Dorothy, and then the other one is filet mignon. Even if they're the same weight, the same amount of calories, right? We, we set the portion so that that the, the, the fat count makes up so the, both of these pieces of meat create the exact same amount of calories and pretty much have the same nutrient uh, provision to us, the same amount of nourishment. 
We'll usually pay more for the filet mignon because of our subjective interpretation of the value of that food. But food is a massive store of energy. Grain used to be a currency. Some of the first currency were paper slips that represented X bags or X bushels or X baskets of grain because grain would store. Grain was infinitely fractionable. I can give you a cup of grain. I can give you a sack of grain. I can give you a cart of grain. I can put it in a big storehouse. And as long as the rats don't get into it, it could be there for 10 years and it's still good. So it made it good money, right? But it was a representation of energy because you only eat so much wheat or corn or rye or barley. But you knew full well that since that store of value was there, that you could take your portion that you owned in that silo and go down to a place where the guy made stone knives and say, I need a stone knife. And he says, okay, do you have silver? And you go, no, I have a little piece of paper. That piece of paper allows me to give you some of my grain. He says to himself, well, you know what? I'm going to need some more stone from the trader that brings the stone here that I make knives out of. He'll take this, even though he doesn't need grain either. We'll take this. We have a psychological contract now that the store of the food value, the food energy, can be represented in a piece of paper. But it's all about the energy. And there's a finite amount of the durable materials, the fuel energy, the health, the food. Next one, transportation. Transportation encompasses the way all of these energetic systems are interconnected with each other and how we move them. Transportation is everything from trucking your tomato across the country to the tourism industry flying you to Italy. Transportation is the way you get to work. Yes, it overlays with the fuel industry. You need gas for the car. But there's a certain cost of the car. And it's stored up in an energetic value. And the last one itself is monetary creation, manipulation, and movement. The biggest industry in the world is actually the manipulation of the representation of the energy that does all these things. The cost of money is huge. And you pay it. Now, if you want to control a society, if you want complete and total control of a society then what you really want to control is their durable materials, their fuel, their health, their food, and the way by which they travel and exchange things. And the way they travel is one part, and exchange is based on the energetic representation of money itself. And if you control those six things, you control every society. So when I tell you you have masters in the plutocracy and the oligarchy, I'm not making a metaphor, I'm being dead literal. These corporations that control those six aspects of your life are really, it's really five. It's the materials, the energy, the health, the food, and the transportation. Those, those are your five areas where you're controlled, and the people that control the monetary manipulation, movement, and creation, okay, Those people control those five industries. Because those industries have to go to the monetary creator, the monetary manipulator, the monetary mover, and purchase money. And they purchase money for a lot less than you do. Have you ever bought money? You don't think you have, but you have. You've bought money. When you go and you work and I pay you, I, I agree, I pay you $20 an hour, you work five hours a day, I give you a $100 check or a $100 bill or a $100 worth of Bitcoin or a $100 worth of silver or a $100 worth of, I don't know, braided dog hair. Doesn't matter. You've actually purchased that money 
with your labor. That's one of the most expensive ways to purchase money. You've probably also purchased money with other money, which unfortunately for the person who works and does labor for money is to purchase with future labor. We call this debt. And if you go buy a house and you get an interest rate of 5% spread out over 30 years, that's what you've paid for the money. And 5% sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But you bought a $100,000 house at 5% interest for 30 years. You bought a $100,000. What did you pay for it? What well, 5% on 100,000, we take out the PMI and all this stuff. When you just look at the loan, you'll have a payment of about $470-ish a month, right? Um, and that means that you'll pay $193,000 over the life of the loan. It's only 5%, but it's 5% over 30 years. Mortgage. You know what mortgage means? Mort means mortality. Gage is from Old English, meaning to grip. Mortgage is death grip. So the word, it's where the root of the word comes from. To be under death's grip. To be in a mortgage. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying maybe you should understand it. That's what you're really doing. But that means actually you pay $93,000 to gain access to $100,000 that you have not yet earned. So your real cost is $193,000. You've actually paid the full price. Plus all the other things that go along with real estate and the things they tell you you have to do. Uh, and many times you do have to do them. Sometimes you don't. But a lot of it is just set up to benefit others. But just on its on its face, you you spend that much money to buy $100,000. What does a bank pay for its money? What does a bank pay for its money? You deposit money. They give you a little interest. That's one way to say they pay for their money. But they, they really, that's not what I mean. The bank pays the prime rate. Whatever the federal government says, uh, or the Federal Reserve says that the banks can borrow money for interbank activities and for bank lending at, which is less than 1% right now. That's what the banks pay for money. A quarter of a percent, a half of a percent. See, the higher you are in the hierarchy of money, the less you pay for your money. So the banks pay a quarter of a percent, a half a percent for their money. And you pay 5%. They run their cycles in short terms, borrowing more money to pay for the money that they got. They can get an unlimited supply of money. If they're a top bank, one of the members of the very group that creates the money and says they can have it, and they pay a little more and they have to run in longer cycles if they're a mid-tier bank or a bottom-tier bank. But in any event, they pay less for the money. The corporations operate on short-term cycles, revolving lines of credit, and they pay less for the money than you do. The further you go down, the more you pay for the money. There is a fortune to be made, though, by selling access to money and selling the ability to transfer money or the selling the ability to manipulate money. The stock market's all about the manipulation of money. It's not about actually investing in real value. If, if the stock exchange was really about investing in real value and you wanted to buy Ford stock, well, you'd just buy it from Ford Company. You wouldn't buy it on the exchange. The exchange is a giant manipulator. The exchange allows people to go in with supercomputers and trade stocks at lightning frequency and skim energy off the top in the form of dollars. Right? And that energy has to come from somewhere. We can't create it. We can't destroy it. So in the end, it's literally sucked from the economy itself. Now, the good news is, and what, so why doesn't the machine break then? How long can you suck the energy like a leech 
before the, the host runs out of blood. The leech keeps some of the blood, but puts some of the blood back in. And the machine, the, the economy, continues to grow and produce more and more blood. So it's not like a straight leech thing. So if I'm making money in economies, I'm probably spending money in those economies. That's how this machine keeps working. But if you want to control people, that's what you do. Let's talk real quick about monetary creation. How U.S. money is created. And then see if you can understand why it works. Because most people don't understand why it works. You should be able to figure out why it works now. Money is created this way in our country. When we want to make new money, the Federal Reserve loans money to a bank. And now new money exists. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's one way anyway. It's the easiest way to understand it. And you say, well, how the hell does that create money? If, if you come to me, and I'm Jack Co., and you're you Co., and you say, Jack, I want to borrow $100,000, and I loan you $100,000, we didn't create money. We moved money. We manipulated money, but I didn't create it. The well, Federal Reserve doesn't give you $100,000 of their money. They create a journal entry. The old days you could do it with pencil and paper. Today you do it with a computer. You just say, deposit to the bank of Yuko $100,000, enter. Boom. That money doesn't come from anywhere. It just appears. This is very, very difficult to understand. This is extremely difficult to understand. Now, let's put the other piece in it to how this actually happens. It doesn't actually work that way. What happens first is the Bank of Yuko goes to the United States Treasury and invests in a bond, a government bond. They buy, uh, they buy millions of dollars worth. But to keep this simple in your head, they buy a $100,000 bond from the United States Treasury Department. The U.S. government gets $100,000 and they now owe the Bank of Yuko, right, And Jack is the Federal Reserve in this little game. They owe them $100,000 back plus interest. There's an interest rate attached to that. So the bank bought it, and they've made it as a way to hold cash reserves, so they keep it in their bank. Now, the Federal Reserve, not the federal government, the Federal Reserve, which is a private banking system, decides, I want to put $100,000 of new money into the economy. So Jackco, which is now the Federal Reserve, goes to Yuko. And I say, I, I noticed that you're holding that $100,000 bond that you bought. And they go, yeah, we have it. And I go, I'd like to buy that bond from you. I will pay you the $100,000, plus I will pay you the interest that you've earned thus far. I'll take ownership of the bond, and you get cash. And you can do anything you want with that cash. You can loan it out. You can make your own money out of it. You can do whatever you want to, because we'll get out of the banks make money in just a second. But it's your money. If you want a bond, you can keep the interest and go buy another $100,000 bond and just take the little skim of interest you've earned so far, if you want. You go, well, especially if interest rates haven't changed since you bought that bond, maybe yesterday, because I told you I was going to do this. I get a day's interest. Fine. So I buy the bond. You get the money. But how does the money get from me to you? I make a journal entry. The Federal Reserve, when they buy a bond from a bank, they just make a journal entry. But then let's add, so that's it. But do they do it that way? Oh, no, 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 no. 
See, they run the transaction through a brokerage house like Goldman Sachs. So the bank gets a piece of money. Goldman Sachs gets a piece of money. The Federal Reserve technically is paying the fees and the interest, but the Federal Reserve is writing a check out of thin air, and it doesn't cost them anything, and what do they get? They get the bond. The government now owes them the $100,000 plus the interest due. But where does the government get its money? It gets it from you. And your future labor is already owed to the Federal Reserve, which controls all the monetary creation and manipulation and monetary movement in your society. And thereby, not only are you enslaved by this process, not only are your largest industries controlled by this process, but your children and your children's children are already promised to those masters. Now, this seems absolutely, this cannot be the way that it works. There cannot be this organization sitting over here called the Federal Reserve that is not part of the government. The fact that the government might appoint uh, you know, some of the members of the board or the chairman does not change the fact that this organization is not the government. It is not quasi-government. It is a private corporation designed to make a profit. And it controls your money. And the fact that they can just type in some numbers, hit enter, and make money appear seems like that cannot be. It is. And it is that simple, and there is nothing complicated about it. It only appears complicated because your brain goes, that can't be. Well, it can. It gets worse. When you Now, let's say I'm not, Jacko is not the Federal Reserve anymore. Jacko is your local bank. Ten branches in your general area. Your friendly bank with a friendly loan officer. And you come to Jacko and I go, Hi, welcome to Jacko. I'm Jack. And I shake your hand. I go, What can I do for you today? And you go, Jack, I can't believe I'm talking to the president of Jacko Bank. But awesome, I want to borrow money. And I go, How much money do you want to borrow, good citizen? And you say, I need to borrow $250,000 so I can buy a house. And I say, Well, how much are you paying for the house, dear citizen? And you say, uh, well, $250,000, and I go, are you using one of those government programs that get your interest? And you go, oh, no, I need to just do this with a conventional loan. I go, well, then what you need is $25,000 as a deposit on the house, and I will loan you $225,000. And you go, oh, okay, and you scrape your money up and all the other closing costs and all, and you, you come up with your money, and you now are ready to close on the house. And I say, I shall issue you a check. For a quarter of a, well, a little under a quarter, 225 grand to buy your house with. And you will owe me the money. And you say, okay, where's my check? And I go, well, I'm not going to give it to you. I'll send it to your closing. Don't you understand how this works? You'll never actually touch the money. Okay. What you'll get is a debt. Oh, I knew that. So I guess that's okay. So you go to your closing. Sitting across the table from you is a buyer, or a seller, I'm sorry, a seller. And see, I could have messed that up, and then somebody could have nitpicked and said, you meant seller when you said buyer. Anyway, uh, so that person now is going to get your money, okay? But the, the likelihood is they don't own the house outright. They still owe money on the house. Let's say they own $200,000, just to make this easy. They owe $200,000 on the house. They're going to get $25,000, 
And whoever holds the lien on the house gets the $200,000 against the house. Does that make sense? So the bank of Apple computers, because that's what's sitting in front of me right now, uh, has the lien, the $200,000. The bank of Apple computers gets $200,000 to discharge the debt. That, that the current owner has. The owner gets $25,000, which probably goes to buy another house. Okay. By the way, that just happens to be how much money you put in the kitty from your down payment. Just saying. <laughs> and that ratio works out a lot of times that way. Just think, bend your noodle around that for a moment. And then what happens is there is a check for $225,000. The $200,000 comes out and goes to that, that original bank. $25,000 goes to the buyer. And now you have a debt for $200,000. Right? And you're going to pay about $400,000 total if you sit on the loan for the full 20 or 30 years and keep paying on it. You're going to pay about four hundred grand based on the numbers we ran earlier. About ninety-three per $100,000. So $380,000 or what? Uh, no, I'm sorry. We said 225. So I know it doesn't really matter, but I wanted to, I want to do it anyway. A 425,000, 427,000 and change. You're gonna that's about what you're gonna pay for the 225,000 house. And in return, the bank loans you 200,000 that you never touched. It went to the other bank and to the seller, and then that went back into the system. But the bank doesn't give anybody $200,000. The bank uses your willingness and your creditworthiness to sign a promissory note that says you will pay them $425,000 over 30 years to create $225,000 out of thin air. They don't draw from their reserves to pay out the $200,000. They, 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 they extend the monetary creation based on their reserves. So here's what I mean by that. People think since banks operate on a 10% reserve system. So what that means is you would, you would think what it means is if a bank has a thousand dollars, they can loan out 900 of it and they have to hold a hundred in reserve. So for every 900 out there, they hold a hundred in reserve. But that's backwards. No. If the bank has a thousand dollars in deposits on, on the books, they can loan out nine thousand. And the thousand is the reserve. Well, where'd the nine thousand come from? You. You created it. You created the new money. Now, the new money wasn't actually created because the money's energy. The new symbol for money was created. You created it by promising to pay for it with your energy and your labor. And if you want to know how society is controlled, think about that. That's how the whole system works. So we have to ask ourselves, well, how the hell is it, why does it work? Why? That doesn't seem like something that would work, does it? That banks could just, could just write checks on nothing except your promise to pay the money back. Did they actually use you as a monetary creation pill? Do you really think a bank, do you really think a bank could build those giant buildings, put all that security in, have those beautiful floors, free cookies and coffee when you go to do your deposits, uh, pay all those people, pay all those benefits, because they, they pay you 1% interest and loan the money out for 5? Do you, do you really think that there's enough money in that 4% to do all that shit? Uh-uh. You gotta leverage that shit 9 to 1. 
to pay for those marble floors and those pretty walls and those big vaults and all those ones and zeros. That's how there's so much money in the banking system. And the reason it works is because we all agree that it works. Mainly because most of us don't know how it works. You don't understand that when you go borrow $100,000 to buy a house, you are being used to create $100,000 of symbols. And that your labor is being used to generate $200,000 in revenue. So I get $200,000 of debt from you. In return, for $100,000 of money that I can pull out of my ass and create out of thin air. And I immediately take your debt and sell it to somebody else. And they sell it to somebody else. And then they package it together and then they sell that. And that's your... That's your, your, your mortgage vehicles, your mortgage investment vehicles. That's the stuff the Federal Reserve's been buying in quantitative easing. Packages of mortgages that have gone off, have gone bad. It's not everybody's not paying, but enough people aren't paying in the group of mortgages that it's a loss for the financial institution. But how does the Federal Reserve buy those, those mortgage-backed securities? By issuing a journal entry with money that didn't exist, and using bad debt to create new money and putting it into the financial system. And then they collect whatever comes in. Whatever doesn't come in, they write off as a loss that they've never lost, so they don't pay taxes on it. <laughs> and they return the profit to the federal government so that everything's kosher. Except there is no profit, or there's a very small profit, because they keep the the the... the Enough to recoup their investment, but their investment was zero, but on paper it was lots of money. So, it works like this. I want you to think about this. The Federal Reserve goes to the Bank of Jack, buys a $100,000 bond, holds the bond. They paid $100,000 for it. They bought it the day I bought it. They make 3% interest on it, let's just say. The 3% interest over a five-year bond, and they hold it for the full term, five years. The 3% interest is the profit. The 3% interest is returned to the Treasury as a profit. Because the Federal Reserve is a non-profit. But they keep the $100,000 that the Treasury has to pay them when they turn the bond in that they never tendered any value for. It seems complicated. It's not. It's simple. This is how it works. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that anybody can create money. Anybody can create money when we talk about it from a concept of the symbol that is money. Bitcoin is, is just that. So people got together, they built a computer algorithm, they said this is how it works, this is how it will function, this is how it's exchanged, this is all the rules for it, this is how we prevent counterfeiting, this is how we create privacy and public, this is all the things that we can do, and they said to the market, here it is, this is our version of money. You can, you can use it now. And society decided to use it, and it worked. And many other people have tried this with many other different forms of monetary creation, whether it was minting your own coins uh, of silver and gold or doing it with, with things that are representative value like wooden nickels, right? When there was a currency shortage in the United States, wooden nickels were actually exchanged with actual value because I could go get a haircut with this one. And I don't need a haircut. My wife cuts my hair, but I'll take it from Tom 
who owes me a beer because I can go down to the pub and Willie that needs a, needs a haircut will buy me a beer in exchange for the token. And But they only work for a certain amount of time. So if anybody can create money, why do money units fail? Why do currencies fail? Because of the psychological agreement around them collapses or was never established in the first place or was never large enough to create an economy big enough to sustain the currency. Those are your main reasons. So the, the failure of the psychological contract is a typical thing that we think of of economic collapse. The government over produces a currency to the point where it goes into a hyperinflationary curve. Things begin to cost ridiculous amounts of money. Uh, we added a zero to everything, but but it is inflation. It's not the earlier scenario I, I gave you. You are now working just as hard for $10 or $100 as you used to for $10, but $100 only, you know, only buys you what $10 used to. All right, So you're putting out all this effort for the money. And the money's buying you less and less and less. You're going into a burn cycle now. You're now at a point where the economy starts to get red hot for a time because when people get money, they realize this shit's losing value so fast, I got to spend it now. And business actually looks good on the front end of these burn cycles. People just start unloading money. Because the initial burn cycle isn't a daily burn cycle. It starts to be like an annual burn cycle. If I know that I can buy a house right now for hundred grand. But I know I'm going to have a 20% inflationary curve in the real estate market by the end of the year. And that same house is going to cost $120,000. And I want to own a house. I'll spend that money right now. I don't want to spend $20,000 more plus leverage the debt against the $20,000. So it starts at big ticket items. They appreciate faster. Millionaires in real estate. All right? But it starts to trickle through the entire economy. And people start doing things like I might as well get my dental work done because it's going to go up. This actually happened in Europe before this major crisis. I covered it years ago, about three years ago. People doing things like that in Germany. Going, there's enough inflation now to warrant spending the money now. And it heated up the whole European sector. With Germany as the big spender. And it ended up where they're at now, with a big mess. So this, this is how a currency fails. When it goes too far that way. The psychological contract breaks down and people start saying, you know what, I don't want dollars anymore. I don't want pesos anymore. I don't want real anymore. Whatever it is. I just don't want that anymore. It's losing value too fast. I can't trust it. I can't hold it for a day anymore. So the psychological contract breaks. And then economies go into free fall. And some type of remonetization has to occur. Why? Because the money is not what failed. The contract is what failed. The psychological agreement failed. And we need something to prop up the psychology because the economy still has the same basic basal value. There's still about the same number of people. There's still about the same amount of natural resources. There's still relatively the same demand. There's still relatively the same supply. How can the money fail? Because the contract failed. Because the money was never the money. The money was an illusion to make everybody exhibit the energy, to, to, to exert the energy, to do the work, to produce the goods, to enslave themselves. And when the contract broke, now we need a new symbol. We call it remonetization or a new monetary system. Or we use somebody else's money that, that hasn't had the contract broken yet. Or we start to do barter. So that's one way that... Money, monetary units fail. 
the next is that the economy never develops large enough around the currency for it to be sustainable. So if you look at something um, like Rob Gray has tried to do with AOCS, American Open Currency Standard, the big problem AOCS has with tr trading silver and gold, monetary units with a monetary value on them of 50 for an ounce of silver, for instance, is Rob was never able to grow the network of people willing to exchange the silver and gold for real goods large enough where people said, I'm in on this fully. People continue to trade and barter the silver at its dollar value versus its currency value. So it said 50 on it. But if silver was trading for $22 an ounce and I wanted to sell you something for $44, I said it's two ounces of silver. And you said, well, I got, you know, two, this 50. And I said, I don't give a shit. I don't care. Because there's not enough economy of scale. So the reason Bitcoin worked so much better was because I didn't have to mail you a coin. I didn't have to build a banking system. I didn't have to create a place where there was a vault. And when you spent your money electronically, somebody moved an ounce of your silver to, to other guy's silver little hole. right? Because we never needed the silver. We never needed the gold. They were just a convenient form of accounting. That's all silver and gold are. They're convenient forms of accounting because they can be fractionalized. They're durable. They last forever. Silver today is the same as it was 10,000 years ago, and it'll be the same 10,000 years from now. It's so will gold. So you could you can break them up. You can refine them. They're of known purity. They're all the same. An ounce is an ounce is an ounce. But Bitcoin is all of those things as well. So what made Bitcoin work is initially the people that adopted Bitcoin were all tech-savvy people. And they were all doing things that were non-material goods. Most Bitcoin initially was exchanged for non-material goods. So I am a programmer, and I program code, and you need some programming done, and you want to pay me in Bitcoin. Well, part of my job is I have a server that I need to pay for. And if that person with that server takes Bitcoin, I don't care. I'll take Bitcoin. So I use that to buy server space. The server guy, right, is, is you know, doing, let's say, uh, advertising to advertise his server space and a place that he's buying advertising from says, well, we'll take Bitcoin. So he takes the Bitcoin. And we start this little small economy. But as that starts to gain broader acceptance, the currency begins to actually increase in value. Right? It becomes stronger. Its exchange rate goes from a fraction on the dollar to a dollar pairing. That's what happened with Bitcoin. So one Bitcoin became worth one dollar, and it began to break away. Right? And right now, what's a Bitcoin worth? $379. Why? Because I say so? Because Coinbase has that as the exchange rate? Because I can take a Bitcoin and sell it and get $379.28 right now? No. Because collectively, the economy that grew around Bitcoin says that's what it's worth. Because that's what can be traded for with Bitcoin. That's why. No other reason than the psychological agreement is there. So instead of what has happened with many attempts 
to monetize silver and gold into currencies. Many people have tried this. It's, it's not just Rob. Uh, there's been quite a few different, and I, I get, occasionally I get silver coins from people that are old silver and gold currencies, and they're marked with their own currency units or what have you. And it's too cumbersome. So unless you build a local economy on it, or some sort of uh, a community economy on it, like, here's another example. You want to see how currency gets created? Texas State Fair prints its own money. They call them coupons. Your state fair probably does it too. Now they do it for a totally different reason. It reduces the risk of theft. You have all these vendors all over the place. They have their coupons, right? It's like casino chips. Casino chips are currency too, all right? But you go to the state fair and you want to buy uh, a corn dog for whatever reason. A corn dog is 15 coupons. You try to buy it with money, you got to go to the coupon place, buy the coupons, and buy the corn dog. You then take the, the, the corn dog guy at the end of the day, takes all his coupons and goes back to the state fair people and they exchange his coupons for money minus a fee. It's a, it's a microcosm of the United States economy. It's the exact same damn thing. Now, the thing is, if I try to spend a Texas coupon, Texas state fair coupon, outside of the state fair, then it may or may not work depending on certain things. If the fair is going to be going on next week, and you're going to go, and you know you're going to go, and I owe you 40 bucks, and I'm short on cash, but for some odd reason, I got $40 worth of coupons, and you know you're going to go there, and you know you're going to spend at least 40 bucks, which it's hard not to, and I say, well, I'll give you 40 bucks worth of coupons, and you say, okay, and I give them to you, the psychological contract exists because the value quotient is there. You know the rules. I can easily transfer the property, the representation, the symbol, you can take it and you know what you can get for it. Okay. Now, the problem with the state fair and using their coupons as a currency is it only lasts two weeks long. I think it's two weeks. And when it's over, it's over, and the coupons from this year won't work next year. So there's a temporal limit and a geographic limit. It's only so big. There's only so much I can buy. There's a limited economy. It's an inflationary economy. In other words, my exchange rate sucks because I can buy a corn dog at a corn dog place down the road for less than I can buy it at the state fair. So I'm paying a higher rate. So it's a form of inflation. So that actually does work, but it works temporally and limited. And many of the regional currencies suffer from the same type of thing, Ithaca hours or Berkshires are two examples of regional currency. But they don't have the temporal limit, and they actually create an artificial deflationary economy to strengthen outside dollars, bring them in, and hold them in. So if you go to buy Berkshire bills, right, in the Berkshire area where they take this regional currency, and I go into a coffee shop, and let's say a, a coffee's two bucks. Well, it might be 1.8 Berkshires, but there's a one-for-one -one exchange. I can take a $5 bill and get five Berkshires. And now I can go spend 10% less to buy my coffee. So I drink my coffee. Now what happens to my money? It stays in the Berkshire economy. 
So these work. And as long as there's enough merchants and businesses and places in that region that take that currency, you can actually use a regional currency to attract a national currency and hold more national currency in your region and exchange your local goods with local people. But the problem is if not enough national currency comes out to purchase what you need to import, okay, then the currency will fail. Then the currency will fail. Because the guy that pays his employees in Berkshires is, is happy to do so. But he has to pay them in dollars too unless the electric company starts taking it. Unless the gas station, and the gas station might. But the gas station has to take in a certain amount of dollars because sooner or later a truck comes and a guy in a truck that's coming from 100 miles away ain't taking Berkshires. He wants dollars. So this is exactly how national economies work. When you look at an economy being an import or export-based economy, the more they have to import, right, the more of their own currency has to be exchanged and sent out. The more they export, the more of their own currency they can hold in and the more value they can pull in from outside and convert to their own currencies and the greater freedom that they have. So if you want to have control of your currency, you want to be an export-based economy. So, are we? And the answer is no, we're an import-based economy. So that's why we've had to manipulate the dollar to being the global standard so we could get away with that. So we could create it out of thin air, buy shit all over the world with it, and keep doing it and keep getting away with it while our production goes down and our consumption goes up. And that eventually can lead to what? A psychological contract failure. So that's why currencies fail, and that's why they fail to succeed. Either the psychological contract breaks down, or the exchangeability of the currency is not sufficient to allow the economy to grow around it. Bitcoin succeeded because you can exchange it like that. I can hold Bitcoin, I can exchange it for dollars. If I'm a merchant, I have no good reason not to take Bitcoin. If it will get me customers I wouldn't otherwise have, and it'll save me fees, and I don't even want it, I still have no reason not to take it. That's why companies like Target are taking it now. They're not holding it. <laughs> they might eventually when they start realizing there's a, a, a potential to make money by holding it. But all they're doing is taking it and converting it, taking it and converting it, taking it and converting it, taking it and converting it. But they bring value. Because they bring a product to sell. See, the money derives its value from the economy, not from the paper, not from the gold, not from the silver, not from the government. That's the giant illusion that the government creates the money, and therefore the government creates the value, but the government creates nothing. It applies its seal, its stamp, its mandate, what have you, its backing, I'm not saying it's backed by the government now, or it was or wasn't. I'm saying it's one of those things. That's how government makes a currency accepted in its borders. By doing one of those things. They back it. They accept it. So one of the, the biggest reasons that the dollar is accepted in our country today is your tax bills come in dollars. Your sales taxes in dollars, you got to pay it. Right? Your, your income taxes in dollars, you gotta pay in dollars. You can't pay the federal government with Bitcoin. You gotta pay them in dollars. 
The very fact that they make you pay their their bill in dollars for what they provide makes that have value. They put their seal on it. And they sanction the entity that controls, manipulates, and creates it, the Federal Reserve. By saying we appoint their, their, their chairman, and they make you think he's part of the government because of the way he dresses, the way he talks, and the places he shows up and speaks. He's not part of the government. It would be like... If the government appointed the CEO of General Electric and saying, well, that means General Electric is a government organization and the guy that's running it's part of the government, he's not paid by the government, he's paid by General Electric. Okay, And no matter what he says, there's a big enough organization below him that they're going to do a lot of the things they want to do the way they want to do them anyway. And changing him won't really change the organization And his salary is paid by the organization that he oversees. And it's more important that you keep the people paying you happy than the people that have placed you happy. All right? So the GE, if you place the guy in there as CEO, and, and he said, well, guys, they, they're going to fire me. And they say, don't worry about it. We're a big, we're a big group. We'll find something for you to do if they fire you. You do what we, we do, you do what we say, okay? Okay. See how simple that is? That's the Federal Reserve. That's monetary creation. That's how currencies fail. So what then is inflation? Because inflation is another thing people just don't understand. They just don't understand inflation at all. Inflation is not more money. That's not inflation. So if I just print more bills and put them out there, that's inflation. It depends. It depends. What is the real money? It's the psychological contract, and it really is the energy and the value in the economy itself. If I print a thousand more dollars and stick it in the economy today, but the economy's value increases by a thousand dollars or more, and I, then I have kind of about a stasis and I have no inflation. Okay? So just because we print money does not guarantee inflation. We have to print, print money faster than the value of the economy grows. In fact, if we fail to print enough units of money, all right, and keep pace with the growth of the economy, We can have a currency shortage, and then we have deflation. So we can even be printing more money every day. We can be increasing the total units and have deflation at the same time if the economy is outpacing the creation. So if we're putting a, keeping a small microeconomy, if the economy is growing by $2,000 a day and the monetary creation is $1,000 a day, eventually the dollar will get stronger and stronger and stronger, and that's deflation. And that benefits savers, and it hurts borrowers and spenders. Okay, If you have a mortgage, inflation is good. Because as the value of money goes down, the, the value of your underlying asset, your home, goes up. And that means if you want to exit the mortgage early, you can profit when you exit. Because your house, even though it didn't get bigger, it appreciated in value, but it really didn't. The value of money, money went down. Okay? So if you're in debt, you want inflation. Why do you think we have it? The majority of the people in this country are in debt. The whole economy is based on debt. Money is created with debt. Deflation is the death of the United States economy. A stronger dollar kills what export markets we do have. And it increases our dependence on imports. Because the imp as your dollar gets stronger, your price of importation goes down. Is your dollar, see, it's crazy. Like, you think you want your money to be stronger, but not when you're running an economy the way we do. Right? 
When your dollar gets stronger, you immediately begin to export jobs and import goods and services. When your dollar gets weaker, you actually begin to create jobs and export goods and services. It's completely contrary thinking to the way that this is why you hear these talking head idiots in the financial world saying debt doesn't matter and they're idiots, but they're not totally wrong. In some ways, properly managed at a national level, our debt doesn't mean anything. $18 trillion means nothing because we're never paying it back. It's never going to go down. We're never paying it back. It's never going to go down. It's not going to go down one dollar. Ever. If it does, it means our economy is contracting. Because it's built on expansion, and the expansion is based on debt. It, it sounds insane, but it's true. So, the other thing we need for, for inflation to happen is what's called velocity. Monetary velocity. So let's say that tomorrow morning, the Federal Reserve decides they are going to create $100 billion dollars. And just put it into the economy. Not that out of line since they were doing about $85 billion a month. For, for like 30 months they did this with QE. Okay? And they quit. They said, like, yeah, let's make $100 billion tomorrow. So they print $100 billion. And they, just, they, they create it how? By putting it into the banking system. Alright? Now, you think, well, that has to create inflation. What if they do $100 billion uh, a day for 10 days in a row? That's a thousand billion. That's a trillion dollars. That's an increase of the monetary supply by almost 10%. So that has to create 10% inflation. And the economy doesn't grow by 10%, and it won't. It has to. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Why? Because it only actually does something if the money moves and multiplies in the economy. That's the velocity. So if all the banks get the money... And sit on it. There's no inflation. Why would there be? They might take a little bit to pay some executive bonuses and stuff like that. But if the majority of the money just sits in the bank's balance sheet, there's zero. It doesn't matter that there's more money. If they're not spending it or loaning it, it doesn't do anything. When they loan it or loan against it, not only does it move, it multiplies. If you give me a million dollars at your Jacko Bank and I loan nine million against it and hold a million in reserve, it hasn't just put a million into the economy, it's put nine million into the economy. And what the government and the Federal Reserve have done conjointly is to pump massive amounts of money in the bank and go, spend it, loan it, spend it, loan it. And the banks have gone, <laughs> we're not spending it, we're not loaning it, we're holding it. We're holding it, and we're holding it in paper with your name on it, Treasury Department, so that you can pay us more money. <laughs> and when we get tired of holding it, we sell it to ourselves, because we make the Federal Reserve up, all of our banks are part of it, for nothing. And then you pay us there, and then we give you some more, and we hold it, and we don't want to spend it right now, because we are afraid that if we loan too much and spend too much, We could have our own problems. So we'll hold it. So what the Fed chairman said is, I will make you do it. 
I will pump so much money into your ass that it will come out of your ears and you will have to push it through the economy. And a little piss trickle came out the other end. And a small rebound happened. And then the bank said, you know what? We're not in the business of loaning money. We're in the business of making money. So the banks started to take the money and buy stocks with it. And what kind of stocks do they buy? They bought dividend-producing stocks. They said, the hell with this 2% federal treasury crap. I'm going to go over here and make 5% dividends on, on a, a stock. And I'm going to use high-frequency trading to make sure that if that thing comes down at all, I'm going to flip it into something else. And they went to the high-frequency traders and they said, here, take our money. Play with it over here. And the stock market went, blew up. And everybody was, how the hell is the stock market blowing up when, when the economy is not keeping pace with the stock market? And if the stock market's blowing up, why isn't there inflation? Because why aren't, why aren't, why isn't everybody making money in the stocks? Well, first of all, people had to get the money back they already lost. So the giant gain isn't a gain. It's a recovery and then a smaller gain on top of it. The people that made the big games are the ones that jumped out early and rode it all the way back up because they fueled it with their own money. Your high-frequency traders, your banks, your institutional investors. And they profit, and you get nothing, and their money's sitting in the banking system, and the, the, the average person whose 401k value went up, etc., their mutual funds went up, their stock price, they're not drawing that money out, it's just sitting there too. So inflation only happens if the money moves. Remember when I talked about hyperinflation? People get to the point where they're like, It's going to be worth less tomorrow. I got to spend it now. I'm going to go get 10 apples with it today, and if I wait till tomorrow, I'm only going to get eight. But that money's moving. And you can actually create inflation without increasing the supply if you just increase the velocity. You can leave the supply constant, jack up the speed, and create artificial inflation. It's not just about printing money. That's what you've been told. That's They've made it simple. In a way that's simple because it fits your mental imagery right. Okay, if there's more, then it's worth less. I get that, right? But they don't actually tell you the truth. That it all can be manipulated with psychological manipulation. We can make you spend less by saying something. We can make companies lay off employees by saying we're in a recession. We can make companies hire employees by saying we're in a recovery. And the company's balance sheet doesn't change either way. Well, when they lay people off, they have more money. They lean out. We can force lean-outs in our economy. You don't think the Federal Reserve occasionally forces a lean-out? You know what a lean-out is? Trimming the fat. There's a shitload of people that lost jobs that were good people, that were hardworking people in a recession. There's a shitload of people that lost jobs in a recession that were useless, functionally, elementally useless in their jobs. The company didn't need them. The company didn't know they didn't need them because the company's big enough they think they need everybody. They do a 10% layoff, and they have areas where the company starts to struggle. They rebalance some things, and they find some money to hire a few people back here and there where they have their weakest points. And then they go, hey, the company's actually running as good or better than it ever did, and we have only hired back 3 to 4% of the people that we got rid of. And headcount, not necessarily the same people. And then these people are going, well, I'm getting my job back. You're not getting your job back. Your job is gone. That's a lean-out. It improves the efficiency of the entire economy. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I'm saying it's what happens. And I'm saying the people in the Federal Reserve know this. They will intentionally cause many recessions to avoid grand depressions. 
Not because they're benevolent, because they make money that way. If you want to make money and you manipulate, trade, and control money, you do not want a constant up, you do not want a constant sideways, and you don't want a constant down. You want a variability of up and down and up and down and up and down with a, a general push up. That's the goal, and they're actually pretty good at it. I'm not saying it should be, but I'm saying that's why it works. Now, let's talk about money from a standpoint of freedom and slavery. But let's go way back. Let's go way back. So money was the first thing to create a true liberty and freedom in the world. And then it became a chain of slavery. How did that happen? So let's go back to the, you know, the, the, the prehistory. And let's say that we all live in a village. And let's say that I'm a great storyteller. And that you are a great knife maker. And that our friend across the street is really a great hunter. But the truth is, I can't just sit around and make knives or, or, or tell stories. And you can't just sit around and make knives. And our friend across the street cannot just sit around and tell stories. Or, or uh, And uh, what did I say our friend across the street did? <laughs> hunt, right? He can't just hunt. Right? He might be able to get closer to doing what he wants to do than anybody else. He's bringing meat into the, the village. But the village only needs so much meat. And I also hunt. And also skin with my knives. And I build huts. And all of, we all do the same types of things. And one day, a group of other people encounter our group and say to us, we have meat. And we say, don't need meat. Just don't need it. Got plenty. And they say, well, what we really need is grain. And we say, well, we have grain. And they look and they say, well, we have knives. And I go, well, we all know how to make knives. And we look at their knives, and their knives are beautiful. They're like the knives I, uh, you, that you make, because you're the knife maker. You're really good at it. You're an artist. And we say, you know what? There's groups coming through all the time. We all can only make so many knives, especially knives of this quality. We as a village will take those knives and give you grain, even though we don't need them all. Because now we know when the next group comes through that they'll take the knife. It's not going to go bad. It has a certain amount of energy that went into its creation. It has a functionality. It has a value. And they'll take the knife even if they don't necessarily need them because they know that the next place they go will take them. And sooner or later we got to a point whether it was a stone with a hole in it or a silver coin or any kind of agreed upon thing like a tally stick that we had a unit of exchange that was considered very quantifiable within a given area. That was the first money as we think of it as a symbol. right? Now once that happened, what did that mean? That meant that if I was a great storyteller, and I went into the center of town every day, and I sat down and told stories, and said, anybody that enjoys my stories can put some money in this bucket. And if you don't enjoy my stories, don't listen to me. You can listen for free, But I ask that if you really enjoy what I do, put money in this bucket. That's basically the MSB. Okay? And you could go down the street and you could start making knives. And you could open the knife store. And because now there was this money thing, when somebody needed a knife, instead of bartering with you with some weird component, it was a quantifiable value to your knife. 
And you could pursue your dream of being a great knife maker and make knives. And when I needed a knife, since I could make a half-ass knife, and everybody was multi-skilled at the time, but you made a perfect knife, I tell enough stories to go buy your knife. And the guy down the street that was like, I think I can make this grain better, could become a farmer and sell his grain. And then the guy that was the hunter could go out, use the knife that he purchased to skin his game animal and sell his meat to the butcher, who would then portion it out and distribute it to the town and because he wanted to be a butcher. And in the beginning, money created the ability for people to become specialized. Doesn't mean, we, doesn't mean we gave up generalism to the point we have today, where we've gotten insect-like specialization. But we had the ability to say, I want to be a poet. I want to be a mechanic of the day, or a carpenter, or what have you. But into this came the psychopaths. The psychopaths are the people that want to control others. So you actually have to be a psychopath. If you want to control the actions of another person beyond simply preserving life and liberty and safety. Anything beyond that, we should not be controlling other individuals. Or there's something mentally deficient in our brains. And the truth is, you probably don't really want to control anybody else. You've been led to believe that it's necessary to protect your wealth and your safety and your health by the people that really do want to control others. These psychopaths, as they saw this develop, especially the agricultural component that let civilizations get bigger, said if we can manipulate and control these people, then we can gain from their efforts and do very little ourselves. And that got bigger and bigger and more powerful. And the means that they used was the very means that created the first individual liberties there to specialize money. And it was done through the power of, of, of loan and interest and taxation. It was done in religious institutions with religious governments in the form of tithing, and it was done by secular governments in the form of taxes and tributes. And once that apparatus was in place, it was over. And the more that the controller could control not just the cost of money and access to money, but the very creation of money, the greater the control that they have. So the greatest control in society revolves around the control of monetary creation. And in your nation, which is supposed to be the freest nation in the world, the power of monetary creation exists in the hands of the banks. Both at the national level, in a board of the biggest banks called the Federal Reserve, some of which are international banks, by the way, not national banks. And in a smaller case, in all the other banks that issue all the other credit and all the other loans and all the other access to money, not in the hands of the government. The government retains the ability to tax. The government, But as soon as the government begins to spend beyond its taxation, it has to then borrow money. And who does it become beholden to? The money creators and the money lenders. And therefore, the government and the people are beholden to the banks in this country. And it's all because we have agreed to it through a psychological contract that says Ben is worth more than Andy. And that's the fundamental reality that we sit in today. And that's how it created slavery. So how do you use this to your advantage? Well, what you have to understand first is what you can and what you cannot control. It is an illusion that Ben is worth more than Jack. It really is. It absolutely is an illusion. But it's, a, it's an illusion that's created a collective delusion 
of about 300 million of your fellow citizens that believe it to be so, and therefore the illusion is reality. Ben is worth more than Jack. Ben does buy more than Jack. It takes five Jacksons to make one Ben. Period. And it takes a hundred Georges to make one Ben. Period. And there's a quantifiable value of those things because of the collective delusion of society that believes that government is the one that can create the money and that the oligarchs are really kind of supposed to be in charge because they understand money better than you do. At least they did until now that I've told you how it works. And therefore, you have to accept this is the system that you're in. Well, here's the thing. The people in power have to play by the same rules. They might understand the rules better. They might be able to manipulate the rules. But in the end... Their world runs on money too. And their money, their world runs on debt as well. And they can exceed their debt thresholds just like you can. And they have to do things to keep up the illusion. And the way they prosper is they fully and wholly understand the system and they manipulate it to their own benefit. They do so at your expense. You can fully and wholly understand the system and manipulate it to your benefit at no one's expense. See, I don't have to I don't have to mislead you to profit from you. I don't have to take value from you to profit from you. I can actually deliver more value to you, for instance, in the form of the MSB and my show, than $50 a year. I can actually create more value than that for you. So that when I get your $50 bucks, or your $37.50 if you're military law enforcement Peace Corps, right? I think it's the first time I ever gave that number out. If I get that from you, it doesn't mean I've cost you that. It means that I've given you enough value that you are willing to make that freedom of exchange. This is how you build business. This is how you build prosperity. This is how you build wealth. You generate value in excess of what you sell something for. But you have to do it in a in, a, in a, a, a leveraged fashion. If you make money digging ditches with a shovel, your value is capped. If you make money because other people dig ditches with a shovel, your value is limited only by as many people as you can find to run the shovels. But then you have to deal with the people. There's a million different businesses out there. But if you're going to be wealthy in this world... You're going to have to control, manipulate, manage, run, operate, own one of them. You don't have to be the next Tyco Toys or, or, or you know, uh, BP Oil or Giant Corporation XYZ. But if you're not moving to the level of the creation, the control, and the distribution of value, and you're only selling labor, your wealth is finite. There's professions where the intellectual value that you bring exceeds the physical labor value you could ever create. Most of the wealthy people that are employees in the world are people like engineers. That's a pathway. And I'm not saying being an engineer, I'm saying it's that type of thing. Where you're paid to think. Not, not like you have a desk job. That doesn't mean you're paid to think. People think, well, I, you know, I, you know, manage my little subunit A over here and I do third party services reports and I do this and that. You're not really paid to think. You're paid to be a cog and you're worth exactly as much as the next cog that goes in there. 
when you're actually creating something. See, engineers create things. I can get a different engineer cog, but he may not create what you created. And I can actually get two engineer cogs and stick them in where only one cog would go before. And if both of you are creating enough, I can employ both of you. I'm not limited to one because you're creating something that I can sell. That's the strategic employee route. You have to be in a creation world where then I will look at you and go, I will steal you from him. I will give you more to come work for me because you're a creator. This is how you understand the system. You cannot create money, but you can create value. And when you create value, money is exchanged. The money was already there. It was already created. It can't be, all it does is change form. And it changes form from someone else's hand to your hand. It changes from one Benjamin to five Jacksons. Doesn't matter how, but it changes. It changes possession and form. But the value creator, and the creator can create real value, or artificial value, or illusionary value. And that's what the oligarchs and the plutocracy and the government do. They create all three. They create real value. They really do create real value. Yes, the government does empower industry to build roads, and those roads have value. You might pay more for them than they're worth, but it's there. They create illusionary value. Stamp a number on a piece of paper, it's worth that much. Right? And they create subjective value. Your life is better because they're there. There's no way you could provide for your own needs without them. Whether it's true or not, the subjective belief is there. And some levels it's true and in some levels it's an illusion. The oligarchs that own the giant corporations do produce things like oil and gas. But they do it by leveraging the efforts of others. You have to mimic what they do on your own scale if you really want to build wealth and understand and control money. You can't step completely out of the system. There's too many other people that say it's real to ever make it fake. But I believe that the creation of real value is the true path to liberty. Because if you're actually creating real value, you're not replaceable. You're not replaceable. Somebody can go choose to spend their money elsewhere, but they're going to get something different than what you're creating. Only real value is irreplaceable. Anybody can produce a two-by-four. But if I'm reclaiming lumber from old barns, you can't just go down to Home Depot and buy that. That's value creation. By understanding a need, harnessing a want, leveraging a skill set. And leveraging capital. I can buy enough old barn lumber and reclaim enough old barn lumber to maintain enough inventory to maintain a market. I'm not replaceable. Even if you go find other old barn lumber, I might have lumber that's unique and special and different. I've created real value. And that means I'll always have a market. I might not always have you as my customer, but I'll always have a market. If you want to understand money, you have to understand again, great back to the beginning, Money is energy. It obeys the law of energy. It can neither be created nor destroyed. It's only changed in form. Currency is not money. It's a representation of money. Okay? Currency is a representation of the energy. Benjamin, on a piece of paper, is a representation of $100 worth of energy. 
value can be created. Value can be added. A tree has value. A managed tree that produces fruit has greater value. A managed tree that produces high-quality timber has greater value. A piece of the tree carved into a statue may have greater value in the market than a tree had as timber. Iron has value. Steel has value added. The oozing sap that comes out of a tree has value. Boiled into a syrup like maple, it has added value. Somebody has to add that value. Or harnessed another way and turned into rubber, it has a different value. The rubber made into a tire has a higher value. The wealthy in the world, even if you don't like them, you have to accept the fact that they create value. So if you want wealth and you want monetary liberty, you have to create value. It is the path of true liberty. I hope this has really impacted the way you view money. I know it's hard on some levels to grasp or to understand or to get why you should even care. But if I'm putting a chain around your neck and you want to take it off, the first thing you better do is pay attention to the way it got there. I want you to think about that. If you can understand the method by which I installed the chain around your neck, then you can develop the system to remove it. If you can't even understand how I put it there, it's very hard to remove. And if you mistake the chain from being a chain of slavery to being an ornament, to being an honor, to being like a metal, and that's what most people think about the slavery that they exist in of debt and future labor obligations and tribute payments and control. And buying things your entire life a la carte instead of developing the systems that produce them. To trading your time and your labor and your energy. And let me put it bluntly, your life force for money that you have to purchase for additional money. And change from that to creation. For that to happen, to create your own value, that generates your own money then you have to understand that what the average American sees is totally wrong. A big credit limit, a giant house, membership in a country club, a car, Ivy League educations for their kids that they'll never really use, and the debt that goes with it, all of that is a giant steel chain with a huge iron ball. But when they look in the mirror, they see a beautiful golden chain, a sash says they've done well, and a medal around their neck instead of the ball that's really there because they don't understand what you should understand now. If this hard to understand, listen to this episode again. My goal is not to tell you what to think. My goal is never what to think to tell you what to think. I often want to tell you what's going to happen, whether you like it or not. You think about it however you want, but I'm telling you what's going to happen a lot of times. But I do want to tell you how to think, how to dissect and pull things apart and comprehend and understand them, right? We can look at a machine. I can say the machine's good and you can say the machine's bad. We're both entitled to our opinion of the machine. But we're not entitled to our own facts. 
The machine functions a certain way. It works a certain way. It requires certain things, and it produces certain things, and it is what it is. Today's show was an attempt to explain to you what the monetary machine is, how it works, how it functions, what it produces, what it does, how you can either harness it or not harness it, how it can enslave you or free you. What you do with it, it's up to you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.